Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Philip Weiss, senior editor with MondoWeiss.net, who assesses Israel's new opposition party coalition, poised to oust Benjamin Netanyahu, and what may change under a new Israeli government. Hilary Schneller, senior staff attorney with the Center for Reproductive Rights, who explains what's at stake for a woman's right to end her pregnancy in a case now before the U.S. Supreme Court. And Alex Lawson, executive director of the group Social Security Works, who discusses the Biden administration's initiatives on protecting and expanding Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid, as well as lowering prescription drug prices. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. President Joe Biden has staked his international reputation on ending atrocities in Ethiopia's civil war in northern Tigray. The region, now engulfed in violence with troops from neighboring Eritrea and rival ethnic militias, is also now facing the prospect of mass starvation. The fighting, now in its seventh month, has killed thousands and forced two million from their homes. The conflict, which pits the Ethiopian army and its Eritrean allies against a regional Tigrayan force, began last November when Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed ordered an attack on forces loyal to the region's former ruling party, the Tigray People's Liberation Front. In his statement, Biden called for an end to widespread sexual violence that the head of the U.N.'s humanitarian office said was being used as a weapon of war, with women and girls being targeted. Biden's comments are the strongest yet from the U.S. about the conflict in Tigray and comes as relations between Washington and Ethiopia, until recently a major U.S. ally in the Horn of Africa, continue to deteriorate. After years of budget cuts to the Internal Revenue Service, giant U.S.-based corporations like Apple, General Electric, ExxonMobil, Starbucks, McDonald's, and Walmart continue to exploit weak enforcement over dubious tax write-offs likely to be challenged by the IRS. But due to the statute of limitations on so-called uncertain tax benefits, many profitable corporations annually enjoy millions of dollars in questionable tax rebates. According to filings with the U.S. Security and Exchange Commission, 14 major corporations received $1.3 billion in tax breaks because their claims weren't challenged by the understaffed IRS. The Institute for Tax and Economic Policy, a progressive think tank, says the aggressive use of tax write-offs is known as the tax audit lottery. Corporations led by Apple filed for $4 billion in uncertain tax claims this year. According to the Congressional Budget Office, over the last decade, Congress cut the IRS budget by 20 percent, resulting in the agency's enforcement staff being reduced by a third. President Biden has pledged to restore cuts to the IRS, including a plan to increase funding for the tax agency by $80 billion over the next decade. In New Orleans, the coronavirus pandemic hit hotel and hospitality workers hard. 
many hotel, restaurant, and convention center workers have been unemployed for over a year or searched for lower-paying jobs at Walmart and Amazon. With the tourist economy opening up this spring, members of the Unite Here Union Local 23 were called back to work because their union contract had recall rights. The guarantee that laid-off workers will be offered their old jobs back when they became available again. Without recall rights, workers typically see their wages decline by 12% and up to 35% for older workers. In These Times reports that the successful drive to organize hotel and hospitality workers in New Orleans was launched in 2004 with the aid of the Las Vegas Culinary Workers Union Local, which represents thousands of hospitality workers along the Vegas Strip. Local 23, which is 90% African American and whose workers are predominantly women, is now engaged in one of the most vibrant union organizing campaigns in the American South, a region where only 6% of workers belong to a union. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. In the wake of the ceasefire that's taken hold after the 11-day deadly conflict between Israel and Hamas in Gaza, Israeli opposition parties have agreed to form a coalition that's now poised to oust Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The eight-party Change Government Alliance, headed by former Netanyahu ally Neftali Bennett and secular moderate Yair Lapid, leader of the Yesh Atid Party, anticipates winning a 61-59 majority in a confidence vote to be held on June 13th. The anti-Netanyahu bloc includes three right-wing, two centrist, and two left-wing parties, along with the United Arab List, a party of Palestinian-Israeli citizens, which would be the first Arab party to join an Israeli government. Netanyahu, who served 12 years as prime minister and now faces corruption charges that could put him in prison, has claimed that Israel's March 23rd election was fraudulent. Extremist groups aligned with Netanyahu have threatened to attack members of the new coalition, prompting Israel's domestic security chief to warn about the prospect of political violence. Your reporter spoke with Philip Weiss, senior editor at MondaWeiss.net, an independent website covering Israel-Palestine. Here he assesses what may become Israel's new governing coalition, and what may change under a new post-Netanyahu government. The coalition obviously needs 61 seats or more to govern or start to govern. And, yeah, it's a remarkable uh, assembly of people right and left. It's, it's everyone who sort of dislikes Netanyahu and a couple of politicians who s- sort of don't like Netanyahu that much and would go with Netanyahu if the circumstances were right. And that includes Naftali Bennett, the uh, the Jewish Home Party, and um, Mansour Abbas of uh, the uh, United Arab List, the Islamist Party. Both these parties might have gone to Netanyahu under different circumstances. So they are both uh, right-wing, one's Palestinian, and uh, there are some centrists. There are other right-wing parties, Gideon Saar's New Hope. Yair Lapid is the, is the largest vote-getter 
of this coalition, Yair Lapid's There is a Future Party, Yeshatid, very secular kind of um, technocratic party, I'd say, but centrist, and for a Palestinian state, lip service on it. He got 17 seats. He's got the most seats of anyone. But it does go on to labor with, uh, I think, eight or seven seats, and Meretz, uh, which is a left Zionist party, which has six seats. So there's a broad span. One notable absence from all this is the uh, Joint Arab List, which are the three Palestinian parties that, apart from Mansour Abbas's Ram party, three Palestinian parties that include a left-wing party. And uh, they haven't been invited, I don't think, and they haven't agreed to sign on. This is a government that's going to be headed by a right-winger, Naftali Bennett, made these very racist statements, absolutely opposed to a Palestinian state. And he doesn't want to work with the joint list, and the joint list doesn't want to work with him. Philip, this coalition that's come together to oust Netanyahu appears very fragile. Mm-hmm. And the first two years, you're going to have this extremist right-winger settler guy, Naftali Bennett, who's yes. going to lead the, the government. And the, the second two years, uh, Yair Lapid, the more yes. secularist centrist, will lead it. But there's a lot of people predicting this coalition won't even last two years. What, if anything, will change under this new coalition for however long they're in power? One real effect of this new coalition would be they will go along with Biden restarting the Iran deal. I think Biden is determined to restart the Iran deal. And the question is how uh, much uh, Israel wants to continue to create uh, political shockwaves and repercussions in the United States over this. And a Naftali Bennett government, as right-wing as Bennett is, I do not think would royal those waters at all. They just say, hey, we we know you need to do this. Go ahead and do it. So that's one good thing. I think that in the same way and with the same idea, they are not going to alienate the United States over annexation of the West Bank. They're going to continue to grab more and more Palestinian land and force Palestinians off that land, but they're not going to do it in the sort of bold annexationist way that Bennett has previously been for, that Gantz has been for, that Netanyahu has been for, that the right wing of Israeli government has been for. They know that if they do that, they're only going to alienate the Democratic Party. So I think that they are going to soft shoe that one, and yet I think there still will be some confrontations with the United States over this. As to the political life of this party, it's fragile, it won't endure. Yeah, that's what I hear. I'm sure that it could fall apart in a second, but one such test of that government will be when its right wing, and it's got a large right wing, pushes it to do more settlements and critical settlements around East Jerusalem to fully encircle East Jerusalem with Jewish settlements. And what if the Biden administration finally puts his foot down? I think we will see some confrontations and potentially a step down by a Bennett government, and then he loses his right wing. I don't know. It's very clear that Netanyahu may not be long for his prime ministership. And he is charged recently that this most recent Israeli election witnessed what he called the greatest election fraud in the history of democracy, really echoing a lot of what uh, Trump has charged about his election laws. What about the threat of violence from the extremist settler movement? After all, it was an extremist settler assassin who killed uh, 
Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin in November 1995. Is there any danger, uh, in your view, of these extremist groups inside Israel and the violence that they could wreak? Well, obviously, I, I think the answer is unquestionably yes. I mean, it's impossible for—I think it's, it would be foolish for me or you or anyone to speculate exactly who their target will be. But as you observe, uh, when Yitzhak Rabin said he was going to trade land for peace, uh, right-wingers incited for his death, including Netanyahu, and lo and behold, an extremist with uh, apparently with some rabbi's blessing killed uh, Rabin. This is like other um, very potent, uh, volatile, intractable problems that uh, resonate internationally and that result in deaths internationally and there too. So I would not, uh, there's no way to answer no to your question. It's an extremely unstable situation in which one people has been persecuted for 75 years and there are going to be consequences. That was Philip Weiss senior editor at mondaweiss.net. Find more news and commentary on the Israeli opposition parties poised to unseat Benjamin Netanyahu by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On May 17th, the Supreme Court announced it will hear Mississippi's appeal of an appellate court decision that throughout the state's law banning abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy, in the case known as Jackson Women's Health Organization versus Dobbs. The Supreme Court has ruled on a number of abortion cases since Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973, chipping away at that historic ruling for abortion rights in various ways. But the High Court's rulings have continued to guarantee the bedrock right of a woman to end her pregnancy. Now, with conservative justices having a 6-3 to three majority on the court, the threat of overturning Roe v. Wade is very real. Many states across the U.S. have passed laws protecting abortion rights, while others have laws that would trigger an immediate ban if and when the Supreme Court overturns Roe. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Hillary Schneller, senior staff attorney at the Center for Reproductive Rights and lead attorney on this case. Her organization will be arguing against the Mississippi statute when the court takes up the case most likely this fall. Her group is joined with many others concerned about the future of reproductive health rights to fight this case. This is a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade, right? The, the law at issue is a Mississippi law that bans abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy, which is well before viability. So that directly flies in the face of the core holding of Roe, which has been reaffirmed time and again, including in the 1992 decision in Casey. To be frank, there are really two outcomes here. The court can uphold this law, and in doing so, it is essentially overturning Roe. And the other option is to you know, affirm the lower court, strike down this law, and thus reaffirm Roe. So it's quite hard to see what middle ground the court can craft here, given that this law presents a direct challenge to Roe. If the court takes the dramatic and drastic path of overturning Roe, that would send the question about the right to abortion to the states. And right, the point of the Constitution is that that isn't what's supposed to happen, that it shouldn't matter in what state you live, um, you, you are guaranteed this basic right to, to decide whether to continue a pregnancy. 
and we know that you know if Roe were overturned, about half of the country, half the states would immediately move to prohibit abortion outright. And that's just, again, not how our, our fundamental rights are, are supposed to work. So Congress um, already has in front of it an opportunity to uh, pass a bill that would guarantee the right to abortion across the country called the Women's Health Protection Act. So that is certainly an option uh, for, for Congress to do regardless of what, what happens in this case. Can you say a little more about that bill? Sure, so the Women's Health Protection Act is a federal bill that would protect against medically unnecessary bans and restrictions like the one at issue in, in Mississippi. It would guarantee the right of providers to provide and people to access abortion you know, free from medically unnecessary interference that we're seeing right, dec- uh, you know, year after year from the states. Uh, it has not passed either house yet, but I believe has you know, a number of co-sponsors and will certainly be getting a lot more attention right this year, given the, the stakes at issue in the Mississippi case. Hillary Schneller, can you talk about both the states that have passed protections and the states that have passed bans that would go into effect if Roe was overturned? Sure. I mean, so this, I think, directly speaks to the patchwork that would continue to exist, right, if Roe were overturned. We're already seeing a patchwork of people's rights, um, but without Roe, that really, um, you know, gets gets so much worse. So about 23 states have protections for abortion rights already enshrined in their constitution or in their state statutes. And that means that people in those states are protected regardless of what the Supreme Court you know, does in this case or with abortion rights or more generally. On the other side, you know, as I mentioned, the other half of states would likely move to prohibit abortion um, if we're, we're overturned. And 11 states already have what are called trigger bans, which are laws that are intended to ban abortion essentially immediately if Roe is overturned. Uh, Mississippi is one of those states. Uh, the Texas legislature passed a trigger ban just this week, and it will you know, be sent to the governor very soon. So, you know, another state that is anticipating, you know, what it would like to do if Roe is overturned. Can you say anything about who will be most affected should Roe be overturned or who's being affected already? We certainly know that restrictions and bans have an incredibly disproportionate impact on people who are already facing systemic barriers to healthcare, you know, Black people, Indigenous people, other people of color, LGBT people, and people with disabilities already face incredible challenges to accessing, you know, basic healthcare. You know, we're talking about this case in the middle of a global pandemic, which is causing further barriers and delays, you know, for for everyone accessing healthcare, and it's certainly including patients accessing abortion care. So without the protections of Roe, of course, there's incredible concern that all of those barriers will only get even worse than they already are. That was Hillary Schneller, senior staff attorney with the Center for Reproductive Rights and lead attorney on the case now before the Supreme Court, known as Jackson Women's Health Organization versus Dobbs. Learn more about what's at stake for women's reproductive rights in this case by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
when President Biden addressed a joint session of Congress on April 28th, he unveiled what was dubbed the American Families Plan, a $1.8 trillion federal investment in education, child care, and paid family leave. The plan's goals include lowering prescription drug costs for everyone by letting Medicare negotiate prices, reducing health insurance premiums and deductibles for those who buy coverage on their own, creating a public option, and the option for people to enroll in Medicare at age 60. Additionally, the proposal would close the Medicaid coverage gap to help millions of Americans gain health insurance. Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont and many progressive members of Congress are coalescing around lowering the Medicare eligibility age below 65 and broadening the program's benefits to include vision, dental, and hearing care. Efforts are underway in Congress to include such provisions in Biden's Infrastructure and Jobs Plan. The Congressional Budget Office projection that the Medicare Hospital Insurance Trust Fund, out of which Medicare Part A benefits are paid, will be depleted in 2026, is another urgent issue that Congress needs to address. Your reporter spoke with Alex Lawson, executive director of the group Social Security Works, a coalition made up of over 340 national and state organizations representing over 50 million Americans. Here he assesses the Biden administration's initiatives on protecting and expanding Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, as well as the push to negotiate lower prescription drug prices. During the campaign, uh, Joe Biden was a conservative Democrat in uh, relation to the other contenders in the primary, but his policy positions were pulled left by the field. And so he also got on board with expanding Social Security, which by now is a, is a pretty uh, centrist position in the Democratic Party. And he has committed to his own plan for expanding Social Security uh, without raising taxes on people making under $400,000 a year. He similarly had a commitment to expanding access to health care. It got a little squishy because he was very adamantly opposed to guaranteeing health care as a right through a Medicare for All position or policy. But he did make a commitment to lower the Medicare age, um, start that process of lowering the age. And he also talked about expanding benefits by adding things like vision, hearing, and dental. We want him to also include an out-of-pocket cap on traditional Medicare. And he has indicated a willingness on a lot of these things. He's reiterated them, not central to his agenda, but he's put it out there that if the Congress can pass a law or get a law to his desk that would allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices and then spend that saving on expanding Medicare that he would sign it. So I think what we're seeing is a sort of presidential administration whose commitment is to this big reform, which I think people generally say is an infrastructure package, but it contains many parts. And the White House has been very focused on the tax reform aspect of it, making sure that millionaires, billionaires, corporations pay their fair share. Uh, and it has been really left up to Congress to move the ball when it comes to uh, expanding Medicare, letting Medicare negotiate drug prices. Same with Social Security, but Social Security doesn't have as clear a vehicle uh, in the Congress right now because Social Security can't be touched 
in the reconciliation process, which the other parts of President Biden's agenda are being moved with right now. What about the future of uh, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid? Given that there are projections there's going to be shortfalls in the years ahead, I've heard that the Medicare Part A, which is hospitals and insurance trust fund, was going to uh, run short of funds earlier than predicted because of the COVID pandemic. The year I've heard is 2026, not too far off. What are some of your concerns around that, and what are some fixes that are viable? We choose to allow our health care costs to spiral out of control because we won't even allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices, even though it's the largest buyer of drugs in the world. It's just a matter of political will to challenge uh, these powerful and moneyed interests. The exact same with Social Security. Social Security is the most small-c, conservatively managed program system in the entire government. It's never missed a payment, nor will it ever miss a payment. All we need is the political will to say, you know what? We're going to get millionaires and billionaires to pay the same rate as the rest of us into Social Security, which they don't do right now. Uh, and in doing that, we're going to bring in enough money to extend the, the solvency of Social Security and even expand benefits. The best way to fix any worry about these systems is to actually do what we've been saying for a long time. The only problem with Social Security is benefits are too low. Let's get the millionaires and billionaires to pay in at the same rate as us, and then we can not only extend the solvency, but expand benefits for everyone. It's, it's just an obvious solution, but uh, D.C. is the place where common sense and obvious things uh, many people are paid to ignore, that which is right in front of our faces here. Luckily, the people are really fed up with that. They don't take that excuse anymore. Uh, and I think the pandemic has opened a lot of people's eyes to the abject failure of a sort of neoliberal model that says the market is going to save us, that the private industry in and of itself is just going to, through the miracle of the market, uh, save us from things wrong. All we're suffering from here in the United States is a lack of political will and a massive propaganda cannon that's aimed at the people protecting a narrative for the moneyed and powerful interests that are actually driving us right into the ground here. And we have to throw them overboard, uh, take control of the ship ourselves, and make government responsive to the people again. It's just that simple. That was Alex Lawson, executive director of the group Social Security Works. Learn more about the national campaign to strengthen Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website, 
at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio, and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WXDR in New Orleans, Louisiana, KPFT in Houston, Texas, KIDE in Hoopa, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.